Baruch at Adonai Hamvarak. Blessed is Adonai, the Blessed One. Baruch Adonai Hamvarak Leolam Vayed. Blessed is Adonai, the Blessed One, for all eternity. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Asher Bacharbanu Mekohamim Venetinlanu Et Torato Baruch Adonai Noten HaTorah. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has selected us from all peoples and gave us his Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. And as it says in Psalm 119, 18, open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your Torah. Heavenly Father, we ask this afternoon that you open up our hearts and our minds to the understanding of your word, not just to contemplate it and to, to think about it and to make an intellectual exercise about it, but Lord, so we can apply it to our hearts, that we can eat it and digest it and, and assimilate it and make it a part of us because we know that your word is our spiritual food. It's how we grow. It's how we live. We can't live without your word. Your word is the bread of life to us. And we thank you, Lord, that that word during this season became flesh and dwelt among us. The written word became living. And we praise you for our Lord and Savior, Messiah Yeshua. Thank you for everything you've done for us and everything you've given us. We love you and praise you and ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Well, I have my sermons prepared way ahead of time. But as I'm driving here, the Lord said, nope you're going to do something else. So I was like, oh, I got to get there so I can write my notes down so I can remember what I'm saying. So I love it when the Lord does that. So hopefully this will be, be a blessing to everybody. But the Torah portion for this week is called Netzavim. Netzavim is usually uh, combined with the Torah portion right after that uh, during regular years. But because this is a Hebraic leap year, uh, the Torah portion was split up. So Netzavim and the one right after are two of the shortest Torah portions in the whole Torah reading cycle. So this is only a few chapters, and we're going to be in chapter 29 of Deuteronomy today. Chapter 29 of Deuteronomy. But, but Netzavim means you are standing. And I mean, there's different ways to stand, right? You know, you see somebody at a street corner, uh, and they're kind of like James Dean leaning up against a wall, smoking a cigarette. Well, they're standing, but they're just kind of casually standing. They're not really standing. You know, there's the same type of standing when you're standing in a line. You're just, okay, yeah, I'm standing in a line. I'm waiting to move forward. Yeah, I'm standing. But then there's standing like you're in the military. You're standing at attention. You're waiting for orders. You're standing as straight as you can because you want to uh, exude the most uh, discipline and respect as possible. There's also that type of standing when you're standing at the altar. When you're standing at the altar about ready to get married, it's a little bit of excitement and fear mixed together. You know, at one point you're, you're standing at attention because you want to be fully involved in it. But at the same time, your knees are shaking a little bit because you're terrified because you're about ready to get married. It's, it's, it's something you've never done before. It's, it's nervous, nerve wracking. And this is the type of standing that Netzavim is talking about. Netzavim may be somehow connected to the word Nitzach, which is the word for strength or the word for victory. So this is not just standing. This is when you are standing, not just standing, but standing strong and standing at attention. And I'm sure that Israel was standing at attention because this was Moses's very last public address before he died. So last words are important. Everybody, you know, even when a criminal is about ready to, to be executed, 
back in the old west. They were getting ready. They had the noose around the guy's neck. He's sitting on the horse, about ready to slap the horses behind. And, you know, so the horse takes off and the guy's left hanging. He's like, any last words, right? Or, you know, even when somebody is at the electric chair or uh, is going to get a lethal injection, usually they ask them, is there any last words? Usually there might be some remorse for what they've done, an apology to the family, to the victims, what have you. So last words are important. So everybody's standing at attention. But not only are they standing at attention, but they're standing a little bit in fear because they really don't know what's going to happen next. Moses is getting ready to die. Joshua is about ready to take over the leadership. They're at the borders of Moab getting ready to go into the promised land and conquer the promised land. The promised land, the land that they've heard about all their childhood, all their lives, they're about ready to take it. It was supposed to be their parents, but their parents didn't make it. They died in the wilderness. So Netzavim is all about reestablishing and reaffirming the covenant that was made with their parents at Mount Sinai. So the first generation, if you will, is like the big glorious wedding, pulling out all the stops, having all the bells and whistles, right? I mean, my goodness, it was at a mountain. They actually literally heard God's voice. They saw thunder, or they heard thunder, and they saw lightning. There was fire on top of the mountain. There was pyrotechnics. I mean, it was a big to-do. I mean, it was a huge wedding. And not only was Israel there, but we know the mixed multitude was there as well which means the Torah wasn't just given to Israel proper, although they're the primary recipients and primary caretakers of that document, but it was given to all mankind because the mixed multitude represented the 70 nations that existed, the root nations that existed at that time. So the Torah wasn't just given to Israel, it was given to all mankind. And so that was like the first wedding because the way that Jews look at the Torah, they don't look at them as laws per se. Even though they are laws, they are instructions, but they look at them as wedding vows. And none of us here would think of wedding vows as a burden. Oh, great. i got to stay faithful to my wife. Oh, great. I've got to be there in sickness and in health. None of us do that. We, we say those vows. We gladly say those vows because we love the person that we're getting married to. We want to spend the rest of our lives with that individual. And so... We look at the Torah not as legalistic laws that are a burden, but as privileges that we get to do. So the first generation started having babies, started having that second generation. Well, that second generation was not at the age of accountability. So when a child cannot make decisions for themselves, their parents make decisions for them. And it was the same with the covenant. When the covenant was given at Mount Sinai, the children were included because they weren't at the age of accountability yet. It was the second generation. They really didn't know what they were getting into. So now the first generation's dead, all except Moses, Caleb, and Joshua. You have the second generation that's there. And so it's time to renew the wedding vows. So first time's a big to-do wedding, right? When you renew the wedding vows, it's more of a, a, a cozy, calm, quiet, intimate, type of situation. Sometimes you go to the justice of the peace, or sometimes you have the ceremony at home or in a church, and it's only immediate family and friends. It's not this big to-do thing, and you're renewing your wedding vows. Well, so this is the second time that the covenant is being renewed at Mount Sinai, or not at Mount Sinai, but it's the same Sinai covenant. It's renewed right here before they go into the promised land. And so the second generation is given a chance to accept this covenant upon themselves, coming in with eyes wide open, because they were children the first time they accepted it. And they didn't really accept it. They were just kind of grandfathered in because their parents accepted it on their behalf. 
So now you have the second generation that has a chance to decide for themselves. Do we still want to follow God? Do we still want to be faithful to him? And so they renew the vows here uh, at, uh, you know, right on the border of uh, the promised land, and, and Moses is getting ready to die, to die. So in Deuteronomy chapter 29, starting at verse 9, Moses addressed the people, and he says, You are standing today, all of you, and that's important, all of you. And he'll get into who all of you is. You are standing today, all of you, before Adonai your God, the heads of your tribe. So he's starting with the big mucky mucks, the big kahunas, if you will. The heads of your tribes, your elders, your officials, and all the men of Israel, your children, your wives. And this includes all of you because they say the outsider within your camp. Wait a second, the outsider? What do they have to do with the law? Wasn't the law given to Israel? Yes, but again, the mixed multitude. It was given to all mankind. So this was not just applicable and obligatory upon the children of Israel. It was obligatory to everybody who was there at the camp that traveled with them, that followed with them. Not only the mixed multitude, but whatever slaves they accumulated uh, you know, during their times of, of, of war and campaign. Now, let me just mention this. A lot of times people will poo-poo, if you will, on the Torah because it addresses issues that we don't deal with in our Western society. For instance, polygamy. Just because polygamy is addressed in the Torah doesn't mean that the Torah endorses polygamy. Some laws are, okay, I'm addressing this because this is a part of your culture. You can't really beat it out of you. You're going to do it anyway. So if you're going to do it anyway, I, your God, am going to regulate it. So what the Lord did with, for polygamy is he, he gave those other wives rights. Because if you read about polygamy, and even our patriarchs were polygamous, it was a nightmare. I mean, I wouldn't want to be Jacob and having all the wives and handmaids fighting, having baby-making contests, and everybody complaining and fighting. How miserable. And so the other patriarchs had issues. Sarah was always fighting with Hagar, and so it was never painted as good. The way it was painted from the beginning is Adam and Eve, not Adam, Eve, Ellen, Eleanor. What you know, it was just Adam and Eve. So there's only one man for one woman, one woman for one man. But God said, this is your culture. And if this is what you're going to do and I can't stop it, I will regulate it. It's the same as slavery. Slavery is not a good thing. But the Torah is the only document that gave rights to slaves and made slavery more as an employee-employer relationship rather than what we know as Westerners as slavery to be. So just because certain things are addressed in the Torah doesn't mean that they're uh, uh, condoned or endorsed. They're regulated. So I kind of wanted to throw that out there because I think maybe that will give a greater understanding to some of the things that we tackle when we're going through the Torah portion. So it talks about the heads and the officials and the children and the wives being there, standing at attention, in, in, in attention and in, in godly fear. And it also says in verse 10, the outsider within your camp from your wood chopper to your water carrier, which was the lowliest jobs of the camp. Each of you is to cross over into the covenant of Adonai. How more plain can it be? How more plain can it be that this is not just for Israel? It's for the mixed multitude and for the slaves. Because he says, each one of you, right after he just said wood choppers and carriers, meaning the Gentiles, those mixed multitude that were among them. Each of you is to cross over into the covenant of Adonai your God that he is cutting with you today as, uh, as it is uh, his oath. So we get this term, this phrase, cutting a covenant. 
Because back then, when you cut a covenant, sacrifice was involved. Basically, the ancient form of making a covenant is, is both parties make promises to each other. And they seal that promise by a sacrifice. And they're saying, what, whatever was done to this animal, may it be done to us if we don't keep up our end of the bargain. So an animal was sacrificed, the blood was pulled on the ground, and both parties walked through that red carpet of blood, sealing that covenant. So today, we just, you know, sign a paper, shake hands, what have you, right? That's, but if you kind of think of a pen, a, a pen kind of, to me, symbolizes blood because it's ink. It's, it's, it's a liquid, right? You know, and you're signing. Anyway, so uh, it says, he is cutting with you today, the covenant he is cutting with you today, and into his oath. Verse 12, this is an order to confirm you today as his people. You're not Molex, you're not Dagons, you're not Ashtoreth, you are my people. This is in order to confirm to you today uh, as his people. So he will be your God just as he has promised you and just as he swore to your fathers, Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Now this reminds me that this covenant is not a temporal covenant. This covenant is eternal. Because remember what Yeshua said about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He talked as though if they were still alive. And they are. Their bodies are now dust in the ground. But their spirits are still alive. And Yeshua says that God is not a God of the dead, but a God of the living. He is the I Am, the present tense. So he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not with you alone am I cutting this covenant and this oath. Now, this is, I think this is a very important part here because the covenant at Sinai was just really for the first generation. And as it was renewed as kind of a renewal of the vows, there was a clause put in that, okay, we're not going to have to do this every year anymore, or we're not going to have to do this every generation anymore. So not only am I including the second generation, but all those who are going to come after you because all your generations are inside your bodies right now. Just as in Hebrew says, where it says that Levi, the Levitical priest, gave tithe to Melchizedek, the greater priest, the old, older, more ancient order of priesthood, while he was still in the loins of Abraham. So it says, not with you alone am I cutting this covenant and this oath, but with whomever is standing here with us today before Adonai your God, and whomever is not, meaning those yet to be born, whomever is not here with us today. So continuing on. No, we'll just stop right there. I think that's a good, uh, yeah, that's a good stopping place right there for that passage. Now, it kind of reminds me of what Yeshua said before he went to the cross. Here, here Moses was about to die. Moses is a messianic figure because he was kind of like a foreshadowing of Christ. And Moses said, when I'm dead and gone, look for the prophet that's going to come after me. The prophet that is going to be like me. A prophet that is greater than me. He was prophesying about Messiah Yeshua. So here Messiah is about ready to die. He's about ready to go to the cross. So in John 17, we see something sort of kind of similar in the verbiage. So he's praying. He's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, the, the Garden of the, of, of the Olive Press. So it says in John chapter 17, verse 20, Uh, let's see, 16, 17. Okay, 17 verse 20. Yeshua says, I pray not on behalf of these alone, 
meaning his immediate disciples, not only his 12, but his 150 disciples that he had that the scriptures also talk about. I pray for not on behalf of these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their message. That's us. That's us sitting here today, right here, right now. Yeshua, 2,000 years ago in the Garden of Gethsemane, was praying for me and you. He didn't mention us by name, but he included us in his prayer by saying, I'm not only praying for my present disciples right now, but I'm praying for everybody who comes after them because of their message. I pray not on behalf of these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their message, that they all may be one, just as you and your Father are in me and I am in you. So also they may be one in us so that the world might believe that you sent me. So just as Israel was supposed to be one, and there's only one God, one law for Israel and all who follow Israel, meaning the mixed multitude, same here where it says uh, Yeshua was wanting everybody to be one. And then I think it's Paul that later reiterates that there is no longer Jew nor Gentile nor Greek nor barbarian nor slave nor free, that we're all one in Messiah. We're all one, whether you're native born or grafted in, what have you. So I think that's an interesting parallel between our Torah portion and the Brit Chodesha, the renewed covenant. So vows. I said that the Torah is like wedding vows. Now, in our modern day vows, sometimes you'll hear the phrase uh, where uh, the bride and the groom will repeat something to the effect of that we are, we're going to forsake all others. So that's kind of equivalent to what is said in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt have no other gods before me. So, I, you know, to forsake all others, meaning that we're just only going to be for each other. We're not going to have any, we're not going to have an open marriage, an open relationship. We're not going to be, you know, sleeping around or cheating on the side. We're only for each other. We're forsaking all others. So let me tell you a little bit about what happened at camp this year that I went away. So every year around this time, I try to get away for about four weeks or four days to a week and uh, have God speak to me. Uh, without electronics, without telephones and computers and internet and everything, I just want just me and God. And uh, every time he's spoken to me, but every time he's spoken to me in a way that I didn't expect. So this time I had a list of questions I was going to ask him and wanting him to answer. Just because I have questions doesn't mean God's going to answer them. He's not obligated to answer them. He's in no way to, uh, obligated to answer the questions that I have. But he only answered one question, and that was the only one that I needed answered. Left me in the dark about everything else, but that's okay. He left Abraham in the dark. He told Abraham, get up and start moving. Where? I'll tell you when you get there. It's <laughs> basically what God said. So, all right, this is a little odd, but um, I don't know about you. But, you know, whenever you think about yourself, or whenever you dream about yourself, you probably see yourself as you are right now. Maybe most of you. Not me. Every time I thought about myself or seen myself, I appeared as I was back at the end of my high school career, the beginning of my Bible college career. I had my hair parted and feathered back. I was beardless. And I'd always seen myself that way. And I was like, God, why is that? Why, when I imagine myself or think about myself or dream about myself, I never see myself as I am right now, bald and with a beard? <laughs> and so that is the question that the Lord answered. So I got to camp on Sunday night, and uh, I got settled in, had a campfire set out there and listened to the nature and watched the stars and went to bed. And I had this dream. 
I dreamt that uh, I was either in an airport or a bus terminal, but it was winter time. And the people that worked there were the people that I used to be colleagues with at the grocery store. And all of a sudden, there was this big group of people that came in from a flight or a bus, and they were stranded because the weather was so bad, no other buses or flights could go out. So they were there. Everybody had their carry-ons and big, thick winter jackets. And somebody from the store said, all right, Chris, you take them around, show them you know, where everything is. All right, guys, come on, let's go. So I said, oh, here's a good restaurant to eat at, and here's some restrooms over here. And the, the more I'm giving the tour, the more people are falling away and kind of doing their own thing. And all of a sudden, I get lost. And I'm trying to find the common area to where people could just sit down and just rest and wait for their flight or their bus or whatever it was. And I'm thinking to myself, boy, you're really blowing it. Boy, you really are a screw up. You can't even find your way around this bus terminal, airport, whatever it was. And I'm starting to get bad, you know, harsh on myself. And I'm like, look at you. There's only a few people following you right now. And I woke up and the Lord said, that is your problem. That is your problem. The reason I see myself, or saw myself rather, as I did back then, is because that version of myself had a very low self-esteem. That version of myself wasn't very confident. That version of myself was unduly critical and harsh. You're stupid, you're dumb, you can't do anything right. And so I seen myself in that way, and the Lord says, that's got to change. And that's got to change right now. I'm not feeling good, I want to go home. Oh, that's good. I was just throwing out. Oh, very sorry. Hope you feel better. So that's how I saw myself. And the second thing the Lord said to me was, you've also got a problem with idolizing that version of yourself. Wait, what do you mean? How can I harsh on myself one minute and idolize myself the next? And the Lord said, remember what you were doing around that time. You were in this cutting edge ministry that nobody was doing. You were reaching out to headbangers to people into the heavy metal music culture. Everybody put you down because of it, but yet you stuck with it. You and your friends were doing amazing things. You were radical. You were, you were, you were an extrovert. You were in people's faces. You were unapologetic and you were very zealous for the Lord. And you feel like you've lost that and you idolize that version of yourself because you feel like you've lost some of that. You didn't lose any of it. Your ministry changed, but it's just as radical because you're doing stuff that nobody else is doing. You're just as zealous. The only exception is you're not so extroverted about it because you've grown wise. You're not reckless. You know, you're, you're, you're balanced in how you, you, you uh, uh, approach things now. And I said, okay, Lord, well, what do I do? He says, you've got to crucify that version of yourself. And doesn't Paul tell us that we need to crucify ourselves? I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I, but Christ liveth, lives in me. And the life I now live, I live to his glory, what have you. And, you know, Yeshua says that everybody must take up his cross and follow him. So I realize I have to die to this past version of myself because this past version of myself was actually controlling me in some ways. So I sat down in the cabin and I closed my eyes and I literally envisioned myself as I am now, approaching my past self stripping him naked, making him carry a, 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 a crossbeam, marching him up a hill, and visualizing myself driving each nail in the hands and the feet of this version of myself, literally crucifying myself in my heart and my mind. And then I said, okay, all right, that exercise is done. That was pretty interesting. Lord, okay, what next? So Tuesday came, and I spent all Tuesday asking questions, and God was silent. 
man, I'm wasting my day. What's going on here? And the Lord said, you need to crucify yourself. Lord, I did. I sat here. You saw me, and then I imagined it, and blah, blah, blah. So the next morning I woke up. He says, no, no, no. You need to write this down. So I wrote it in the form of a story where I was crucifying myself and going into great detail. And after that, the Lord said, pack up, go home, you're done here. And every time the Lord's done speaking with me at camp, that's the way I feel. I can't stay in that cabin a second longer. I immediately pack up and leave, and that's exactly what I did. So as we're renewing our, our, our vows to God by keeping his word, we're forsaking all others, not just the idols of, you know, Baal, Molech, not only the idols of our careers or money or, or our hobbies, but the idols that we make of ourselves. We have to forsake that part of ourselves that we need to crucify, that part of ourselves that needs to die. So forsaking all others. Um, now, it was also the thing that was instituted, which was sort of like a, 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 re, a reminder of the renewal of the vows. It wasn't actually a renewal, but every seven years, every sabbatical year, during the festivals, the fall festivals, Israel would gather, and the entire five books of Moses was recited before the people. So it's as, as if every seven years, the, the laws of God were kept fresh in people's minds. Because we got to remember, not everybody had a Torah scroll back then. Not everybody had a Bible. Whatever they knew of the Word of God is what they heard in synagogues and what they heard the Levites teach and preach at the temple, what have you. And so every seven years, everybody was reminded of all these things. So it kept it fresh in their mind. So, uh, you know, I think that's a good thing for us, and it's a great idea that we read through the scriptures every year. I found a great resource called um, uh, the Daily Audio Torah. And so it's a messianic ministry that has taken the Bible readings, and you can read through the Bible in the entire year, but still keep in line with the Torah portions and the half Torah portions, but get everything else in at the same time. So you're staying in sync with the reading of God's word. So that's what I'm choosing to do this year uh, as, as we're coming upon the Hebraic New Year. Now, one last thing I want to tackle. One last thing I want to tackle is in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And tell me where, why this sounds familiar. So in Deuteronomy chapter 30, starting with verse 11, so it says, This mitzvah, or this commandment, that I am commanding you today, is not too difficult for you, nor is it far off. It is not in the heavens that you should say, well, Who will go up for us to the heavens and get it for us? And have us hear it so that we may do it. Nor is it across the sea. That you should say, well, who will cross over for us to the other side of the sea and get it for us and have us here so that we may uh, do it? No, the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart to do it. Where have we heard that? We actually heard it in the New Testament by none other than the Apostle Paul, Rav Shaul. In Romans chapter 10, verses 6 and 8, he quotes this passage. Now, I know that most every one of us who grew up in church say that it's impossible to keep the laws of God. I think that's bullcrap. It's not impossible. Why would God give us laws that we couldn't keep? That makes no sense. Well, he gave it to his brother to show that we can't do it on our own. Well, we can't do it on our own. And we're not going to keep all the laws of God. Because number one, not all of them applied to a single individual. Number two, we are fallen creatures that are incapable 
of keeping God's laws. Not that they're impossible to keep. Everyone that applies to me, I can keep. It's not impossible. I can do it. Will I always do it? No, because of my fallen nature. Sometimes I allow it to take over. And Paul the Apostle himself says, I do what I don't want to do. You know, and, and he's battling with himself. So that's why. So the, the God would not give us, that would make God a sadistic God. To say, here, here's a bunch of stuff I want you to do, but <laughs> good luck in keeping it. You're not going to do it. No. And it's not that Yeshua, Jesus came to do it for us so that we don't have to do it. That's not what it says in Matthew chapter 5. He says, do not think I've come to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. That Greek word doesn't mean to do it so we don't have to do it. It means I'm going to show you how to do it so that you can do it properly. That's what fulfill means. I'm going to fulfill it. I'm going to give you all the what you need to show you how to live it out. So... That's one of those misnomers I wanted just to kind of put to bed and put to rest because you keep hearing that all over in Christianity is that the law is impossible to keep. It's not impossible. It's just that we're not going to keep it because we're fallen creatures. I think another reason that he got, uh, he do it too was to show us that it wasn't impossible. Yeah. Yeshua yeah. showed us himself that it wasn't impossible. Right. Exactly. He was 100% God and 100% man. Yeah. So let me ask you this then. Is it incumbent upon us? To keep the Torah so that we can be saved. No, exactly. Absolutely not. Keeping God's law has nothing to do with our salvation. We don't keep the law to be saved. We keep the law because we are saved. I keep my wedding vows because I vowed those things to my wife. Right? So it's the same principle. If you look at God's laws as wedding vows, you'll keep them because you want to, not because, oh, I have to, and these are so hard and burdensome. The Lord says, no, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What is his yoke? His yoke is God's word. Why is it easy and light? Because he showed us how to live it properly. Whereas the rabbinic, you know, the, 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 the Sadducees and Pharisees, they were making up all these additional laws to tack onto the laws that already existed. That's why it made it so hard and impossible. The Pharisaical burden was heavy. And Yeshua said, you guys are so selfish, you won't even lift a finger to help somebody carry this burden. And you can't even carry it yourself. But then he said, come to me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. These things are not. And Moses said, and then Paul said, that this, this, this law, these laws, these commandments are not somewhere far away in heaven. They're not so attainable that you can't reach them. They're not way across the sea that you have to go through all these rituals and travel far to fulfill them. He says, no. He says, no, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart to do it. And I can't remember which prophet said this, whether, but it was one of the major prophets that says, you know what? I'm going to make a new covenant. I'm going to write the covenant on your heart. Isaiah. It was Isaiah. Yeah. I knew it was Isaiah or Jeremiah. I didn't want to say which. I couldn't remember at the time. But yeah, he says, I'm going to write, I make a new covenant and I'm going to write this law on your heart. You're going to have it in your mind. You're going to have it in your heart. And so when it's in those places, it's very near us. It's in our mouth. So whatever you put into yourself is what you're going to give out, get out. And so I think that's what even the scriptures talk about how, where it says that what goes into you is not necessarily what makes you unclean, what comes out of you. Garbage in, garbage out. If you're constantly feeding yourself with the word of God, the word of God is going to come out of you. So it's going to be very near you in your heart and in your mouth and in your mind. But if you're feeding your stuff with the things of this world, that's the garbage that's going to come out. That's the stuff that makes you unclean. Uh, all right. So I did have some of my old notes that I will still use. So God showed up 
for the first generation of Mount Sinai, and his arrival was announced by the blast of the shofar. And we read that in Exodus chapter 19. He will show up again through his son, Yeshua the Messiah, by the sound of the same trumpet, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. So Sunday, September 25th, 2022 at sundown, trumpets all over the world will be blown to announce the king's arrival for the Feast of Trumpets, according to Leviticus chapter 23, verses 23 through 25. So I'm just going to blow the shofar, and tonight I'm going to go into a little bit more detail about the coming of the king when I preach tonight at Harvest House. Let's pray. Yevarekaka Adonai Vishmareka. Ya er Adonai Panavalekha Vehunaka. Yesa Adonai Panavalekha Vehasemlaka Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And Lord, I pray once again that you would make your word so precious to us. Help us not to take for granted your word. Remembering that in the past, there's people that didn't have your word. They don't have copies of your word like we do today. If they wanted it, they had to copy it for themselves. And Lord, we have it. We don't only have it in written form. We have it in audio form. We have it in so many different formats that we can take with us on our phones or, or pocket Bibles or what have you. Lord, make us so hungry for your word that every spare moment we have, waiting in line at a traffic light, we're reciting memory verses. Or when we're in a waiting room, instead of playing a stupid game on our phone, we just crack open the word and start reading until we're called into the doctor's office or whatever. Lord, that we would always keep the word you know, uh, within our hearts so that we may not sin against you as the scriptures say. Father, we love you and we praise you. And symbolically, we renew our wedding vows to you. That, Lord, to the best of our ability, with the help of Christ and with the help of the Holy Spirit, we will keep your commandments. Because you said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If we love our spouses, we're going to be faithful to them and fulfill our wedding vows. How much more so to you, our groom. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen.